Here's the icebreaker before the icebreaker. Are you ready for it? This is the most delightfully arousing sentence that's ever been written. <laughs> it appears in On Chesil Beach by Ian McEwan. He emptied himself over her in gouts, in vigorous but diminishing quantities. If his jugular had burst, it could not have seemed more terrible. <laughs> you are welcome. Is this how we're starting this episode? I just thought I'd get you in the mood. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fanfare, a fortnightly culture review podcast by Emma Knight and Monica Ainley DLV. I'm Monica, a fashion journalist based in Paris. And I'm Emma, a writer and co-founder of Greenhouse in Toronto. Emma and I have always enjoyed geeking out together and usually find we're fangirling around the same material. So in every episode of this, our new podcast, we'll talk about what's inspiring or troubling us, whatever's getting us talking. Well, speaking of icebreakers, Emma, I think you might have prepared another one for us, didn't you say? Yes, because we're both obviously extremely awkward on this subject of today's episode. Oh, yes, we're terribly, we're, we're terribly virginal schoolgirls and we're <laughs> going to need to get warm ourselves into this topic. And the subject of today's episode is hot fiction for cold nights. Brrr. And in order to get... <laughs> nights. And in order to, you know, really um, allow the social lubricants to flow because it is 10 in the morning for me we're going to share two truths and a lie just like you would at the beginning of an awkward company zoom so i'm going to start with mine and mon you have to guess which one is the lie are you ready i'm ready so first james joyce wrote some extremely filthy love letters to his not yet wife nora in 1909 that included wait for it an appreciation for the role that flatulence had played in one of their recent entanglements. Oh dear. Next, by far the raunchiest passage I have read in recent years appeared in George Eliot's Middlemarch. Third, recently at a dinner party with several people I had just met for the first time that evening, I overheard Anthony say to the person next to him, you should see us in bed, <laughs> which silenced the entire table. And he went on to say, we sleep with our mouths taped shut. And I'm sorry to tell you that that is true in the context of number three. So go for it. Take a guess. Wait, you sleep with your mouths taped shut? Well, I don't know. Is it a truth? Is it a lie? No, I don't think. I think I would be aware of that. If, and, and also, what would be out to like avoid snoring? No, that would be your nose. I do sometimes want to tape Mark's nose shut. <laughs> So are you calling out number three is the lie? I just, I don't think, I, yeah, I, I actually believe that Joyce probably was quite into erotic flatulence. I can buy that. And there's probably some saucy scenes in Middlemarch. So I'm going to say, I think you're lying. You don't sleep with your mouths taped shut. That's, I would know. I'm so happy that I bamboozled you. No, what? Middlemarch is completely devoid of sauce, although it's great. And if I were to write fan fiction for anything, it would probably be Middlemarch. And I would probably like, you know, add in some of that. But Emma, wait, so I guess you're saying that Anthony told them that you sleep with your mouths taped shut, but you don't actually do it, which I should have realized. No, we both do. We look, it's, it's, we both sleep with our mouths taped shut with surgical tape. <laughs> okay. I'm going to explain briefly because then this is, this is saucy non Are you this pulling my wee wee? <laughs> no, I'm telling you the fairy honest and earnest truth. Wait, this there's is a, a revelation by... of unfathomable proportion. another episode. There's a, there's a spin-off waiting here. There's a book called Breath 
that you have to read by James Nestor and actually especially Mark with his romfling. <laughs> that means snoring. <laughs> that was an attempt to anglicize. So James Nestor, very long story short, great journalist, studied he, he started on this book, Breath, when he was studying divers, free divers, who dive without oxygen tanks. And he became a pulmonaut, which is like an enthusiast in the art and science of breathing, which is understudied in his estimation. So he wrote this great journalistic book in which he does experiments on himself. And so does a friend of his who's also a pulmonaut. But he also looks at the history and like the medical history and the popular history of breathing and essentially figures out that we all would do a lot better by breathing through our noses pretty much exclusively, but that it's easier to breathe through your mouth and that especially at night, a lot of us default to breathing through our mouths and that the overall health impact is actually really significant. And once he gets under your skin and into your head and he's telling you this, you start becoming aware of how complicated it is to fall asleep breathing through your mouth because it's like you just know that you're hurting yourself and your future self and all of these things. And Anthony and I got really up in a snit about it. And so we followed his instructions, which include investing in some surgical tape. <laughs> I am doesn't hurt shocked. when you take it off. And we both have these like little, little pieces of tape when we remember. And it's funny because Esme, our three-year-old, gets into bed with us every single night and she's no longer even remotely phased by the fact that we're both lying there like hostages. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that one was a truth. And now over to you. <laughs> Two truths and a lie. I am shocked. I actually can't. I can't get past this. What if you lean in for a sneaky kiss in the morning and then do you just end up meeting tape? You do sort of forget. And I have done that. I've gone to like either have a sneaky kiss or a drink of water. And I'm like, what the? Or talk if he talks to me. Sometimes he comes to bed later than me. On purpose, he'll say things that are really annoying, knowing that I'll want to answer. But then <laughs> it's basically his dream come true is that I'm completely incapable of communication. How long have you been doing this? Just like, you know, a year. No, I'm kidding. A couple of weeks. I'm sure the novelty will wear off and we'll start to learn to breathe through our, our noses by default, which is, you know, the end goal. I'm, I mean, I'm going to suggest that perhaps there's like another element of novelty that you're not divulging to me here, but I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> this actually leads me really neatly into my two truths and a lie because... Well, my first one actually really involves someone getting very deeply into your head. And that person, in my case, is one of the key subjects of today's episode, Sally Rooney. So I have spent uh, the past few days tearing through Sally Rooney's new novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? And she has got so deep into my head that last night I had to run out of a fashion party because I could not stop thinking and obsessing about the decadence of capitalism and how I am like a key contributor to it and the a contributor to the eventual decline of our civilization, inevitable decline of our civilization. So I basically had to weave through a stream of belly dancers to get out of this mad party <laughs> on the way out. And they seemed like ex extremely passionate in their movements, but all I could think was that they were the ultimate symbolism of said decadence. Oh my god. Like you know in a in a movie where someone is like about to faint and it's all just sort of twirling around them all of the craziness of it and then a, a friend caught me rushing out with my coat with a look of terror on my face. When she asked me what was wrong all I could shout back to her was Sally Rooney before disappearing into the night. Oh my goodness. I can really empathize with that. So my next one is that I 
actually once met Sally Rooney at a house party in Dublin with a Toronto friend who went to Trinity College Dublin. All I can remember is that she was this really cool girl in a really good sweater and that she put her cigarette out on her loafer. And I actually only realized when I Googled her after normal people came out, never was talking about it, that that was Sally from the house party. I mean, I didn't even know her name. I couldn't even remember her name. And I was like, wait, I've seen this girl. And the third one is that after I posted a story because I, so I ran out of a party. I posted a story of Sally Rooney after, you know, and then I woke up this morning to a tirade of messages from people saying that I shouldn't promote this author because of her political beliefs, which they did not agree with. Well, first of all, you've made my job really easy for me because I knew about all of your movements in university and I know you didn't go to Trinity (laughs) to visit a friend. I'm like, you're saying that? You're saying that as if you know me? I didn't know you tape your mouth shut at night with your husband. Yeah, well, that's because you now live. Now we have an ocean between us and I can keep secrets from you. But back in Edinburgh, it would have been really hard for you to sneak away to visit. I don't even know who you would have been visiting. No, that's not true because I remember I dated someone that lived in Ireland at the time. Yeah, in Galway. You don't just like accidentally then go meet Sally Rooney at a party. County Galway, Dublin. Is it all that far, far apart, really? As the crow flies. And also, I'll remind you, I'll help you remember that we uh, had a friend called Alex Rennie who went to Trinity. I know, but I also would have known if you Alex Rennie. very close family friend of mine. You don't know me, okay? You know me. You think you know everything about me. I'm calling out number two as the Whopper. Although I love the image of her putting out a cigarette on her loafer. And I do think that you would have picked she up She would, though, detail. wouldn't she? Probably. I'm practically as great of a fiction writer as Sally herself. No, I mean, I, it was, you're good. You're good. Ding, ding, ding. You're right. And, um, and honestly, mine were a little easy. But I basically just really wanted to tell you all of that stuff. And then I also have this fantasy of having met her when we were younger in university. I really wish it were true. But it's not. Well, do you know what? Both two and three raise important points to do with the separation between an author and that author's work. Because, you know, point number three, I I know to be true, you recently brought it to my attention that Sally Rooney is vocally pro-boycotting Israel and that her political views are, for a lot of potential readers, a non-starter. And, you know, she's missing out on audience because people who otherwise would love to read her work potentially are saying, no, this person is anti-Israel, possibly anti-Semitic, I'm not interested in her work, game over. And I respect and understand why people would react in that way. However, my sense on the subject is that I only, I'd, I'd read her first three novels, her three novels, before I learned this about her political views. And if I had to do due diligence on every author before I picked up their work, or on every cast member of a new TV show, as well as the DOP. And, you know, if we were really vetting the political views of every creative person before we consumed cultural works, that would be a lot of due diligence. And I don't think I would read very much. And I I basically read things that are that I find at random on store shelves. For me, there is a separation between the person's life and their creative work. Yeah. And about the due diligence before, like, let's say we were able to do all that due diligence or someone did it for us. And there was a list of works by people whose views align enough with yours to be worth reading imagine how limited our perspective would be well quite quite so 
So we are, of course, discussing Beautiful World, Where Are You? The latest novel by Irish millennial novelist Sally Rooney. And actually, in this work, there's a character called Alice, who's a millennial novelist and a bestseller, whose work, because it's so widely read, puts her on kind of an international you know, platform that she, uh, this is the character, not Sally Rooney, that she hadn't necessarily prepared herself for and that she doesn't think that she's particularly well suited to for, in terms of personality. And she resents it. And at one point, I'm not, I'm not giving anything away when I say this, but she's dating a character who hasn't read her books and her fans express outrage on Twitter saying she deserves better. And the character finds this really hurtful because she thinks that people who have engaged with her works, things that she's created, don't doesn't mean that they know her. But in this day and age of social media, they have this sense that they not only know her, but know better than she does, you know, what kind of person she should date. The character finds this upsetting and hurtful. We have to draw that line, especially in the social media age. I wanted to use that as a segue into discussing the Alice character, who is so interesting. There are a lot of biographical links to Rooney herself. And she uses her as a vassal to critique the stardom of the modern novelist, you know, which in a really interesting way, I think that there's a passage where she says, I, when I started writing, I just wanted to make enough money from my first book to be able to write a second one. And I think that that might be, you know, Sally Rini speaking her own truth in a certain way. I don't think that she did particularly court the kind of celebrity that she is now granted. However, a Rooney critic would say no one made her do whole series of interviews with a whole series of, you know, magazines, newspapers, TV shows, which she certainly did do. She did a big, big press tour when normal people came out. Wait, I might have to take issue with no one made her. I might have to take issue with that. I'm pretty sure someone made her. Um, you know, there's Elena Ferrante and there are the like four guys in Spain who pretended to be one woman. And there are various anonymous slash, you know, pseudonym using artists out there who get away with it. But for the most part, I'm pretty sure you're expected to show off your work. And that includes the press. And, you know, you have to, I would be very surprised if she didn't feel at least some pressure to get out there. Yeah, no, maybe that's a fair point. I mean, she could have worked under a, a different name, but Fran is a good example. She has but then I suppose she hasn't totally gotten away with it because hasn't she been outed? I'm so glad we're talking about Elena Ferrante right now because I think she's such a good example of somebody who she puts, from my perspective, like I think she used a pseudonym because she put everything on the page and she didn't think that there was anything else to say. So there was no like supporting material that she could provide in an interview that could further elucidate. It was like, no, 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 I've given you everything that exists inside of me. And, mm. you know, nothing will assist your digestion of it. Like mm. take it exactly as it is. It will only detract from it. Don't you wonder if Rooney is wishing she'd done that? I do wonder if she's wishing she'd done that. I don't think there's a single introverted novelist in the entire world who doesn't fantasize about that. Because okay. I, you know, f from so many novelists, I I've heard that like the difference between writing and promoting are so stark and yeah. the personality type required to do the one is very often not present. You have to be a different type of person to be really mm. good at promoting and creating oftentimes, not always, like it's possible to have a bit of both in you or to be able to wear the mask seamlessly anyway, but that 
the act of producing something that intimate and raw. I'm especially thinking of Ferrante's Days of Abandonment in which she talks about a character who's been left by her husband and she's left there with her two children and she's feeling such grief and self-loathing but also fury because she's not feeling maternal. She's not capable of taking care of them in that time, but she's required to. And so she's, you know, the feelings that she's expressing are considered unnatural by our society because you're always supposed to be maternal if you're a woman, even if you've just had the heart ripped out of your body, right? So Mm. it's this like really raw, intense, short, short piece that is painful to read because it's so true. You can tell that it's just like emotionally, whether these things happen to her or not, I'm not. The point is she's obviously gone through some form of grief that she was, or she's just got a great imagination. But you know, the idea that she's able to communicate this intimate human moment, she doesn't want to then go do the circuit and talk about it. Slash she's not capable of it. Slash she doesn't think it would be good for her, you know, real life Mm. kids if she has them or whatever. You know, I think there are all kinds of reasons. Okay, you are clearly even more passionate about Ferrante than I am. And I respect that. She's extraordinary and you make some very good points there. But I want to reel us back in and talk, get to the saucy stuff. Because we have advertised this episode as hot fiction for cold nights. And we need to get to to the steamy literature. So maybe let's just start by me asking you... What would you say was your first favorite romantic novel? Was it a sexy novel or did you find the sexiness in it without it being overtly so? Oh my gosh, that's a really good question. So my first favorite romantic novel, I can answer this in like an honest way or in a way that makes me sound smart. I think you should go for the honest way. So when I was about 11, 12, my parents could fact check this, I had read through all the like young adult fiction that I could get my hands on, all the like obviously Sweet Valley Highs and what have yous and the babysitter's clubs and the, you know, Lois Lowry's and the Philip Pullman's and all those things. Yeah. And so I was ready to move on. And for some reason, what I decided to move on to was a particular, and I'm gonna use a term that I don't love, which is chiclet, but these definitely were chiclet. You know, I say that lovingly, like it's a great genre. I moved on to, for some reason, British chiclet, of which, you know, a voluminous supply is available to, to those who seek it. And so I would go to the library and bookstore regularly with my parents and basically choose anything that had a pastel cover and that was clearly British, because for some reason that made it better in my mind, slash there was just a lot more of it. And I just read like dozens and dozens of books about women in London in their 30s who were in a bit of a rut and then who fell in love with the really hot guy and then who either had some kind of transformation or they happened to already be the really hot guy's type or whatever. And it was, you know, versions of Bridget Jones, but not as not not as funny. I was going to say, is this Bridget Jones or is this more of like a Plum Sykes kind of vibe? Yeah, I'm not remembering the names of the novelists right now, which is terrible. Um, but around the same time as the sh- as the um, Shopaholic series came out and, you know, merchandised in the same section, if that makes sense, mm. and with mm, similar mm. colors. And I very much judged a book by its cover. And I just read all of that stuff. And I thankfully took it with a lot of salt. I wasn't like, this is how this is how love and sex work. But I do think that fiction plays that role in a lot of people's lives, especially young people. And I think that someone like Judy Bloom, who's out there being like, orgasms are real, masturbation's Mm. a thing. All the stuff that she wrote that caused her to be extremely controversial in the 80s 
fiction is so intimate. Somebody's reading, you know, it's from one brain to another. And to be able to meet a responsible adult brain, if you're a young adult, and hear from that responsible adult that like some of these things that may be going on in your life that you may think of as dirty or evil or sin or whatever are natural and part of life. I think that's actually very valuable service to the world. Completely. And it's a huge coming of age moment for a young human. When you get your hands on something, I remember my mother had bought, um, I don't actually remember how explicitly sexual this book was, but there was a book called The Other Bolin Girl by Philippa Gregory. Did you ever read that? Yes. And I remember when you read it and it set you off on a whole historical fiction adventure. To this day, I'm obsessed with the Tudors. Like the other day, my Catholic in-laws were like, so you guys are Anglican. Like what's really the history? Is it like being Protestant? And I was like, well, there was this king called Henry VIII who wanted to get divorced and he had to create a, a departure from the Catholic Church for his entire uh, country so that he could marry this woman called Anne Boleyn. They were very impressed, if not a bit horrified by this story. Well, they need to read Hilary Mantel. Well, yes. Quite frankly, not nearly as well-written precursor to Hilary Mantel. But she does have a sort of way with words, Philippa Gregory. And it was actually turned into a film more recently, I believe. And it's about Anne Boleyn and her sister who were sort of primed to seduce the king. And and I believe that their father, the Boleyn, I believe he also had Protestant sympathies because there was a sort of murmur of Protestantism rising up around Europe, uh, around Northern Europe. And so he not so he was really trying to kill two birds with one stone. You know, all of the courtiers wanted their daughters to seduce the king for, I suppose, obvious reasons, because that was status, money, everything. Not just in Tudor England, I think, for a long time. But I think he also had sort of really important political ambitions and took issue with the Catholic Church. And it worked out really well for a while because Henry did end up divorcing his um, first wife, who was the Catholic widow of his brother, and being seduced first by Anne Boleyn's sister, who was his mistress, and then by Anne, whom he ultimately married and had a daughter with who would end up being Queen Elizabeth I. Now, the problem is that he eventually ended up cutting her head off. I hate it when that happens. Once a player, always a player. That's what I'm going to say. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds there are a lot of really saucy sex scenes in that book, I believe. And I remember thinking, wow, like history and, um, you know, this is like a horny history. This is this whole subgenre that I was unaware of and it's excellent. Okay. No, and I think you make an important point, which is that like sex was not invented in the 60s, right? Like yeah. people were having it before people were necessarily writing about it in a socially acceptable way. They weren't just having it. It was like a massively important pawn in a lot of political games. A pawn in political games, but also like, you know, we're animals as well. So there's a whole, and like, where else do we all come from? It was not in vitro, that's for sure. At what point did it become socially acceptable? You know, you go from like, I was reading something interesting about this the other day. When did we go from, you know, Lady Chatterley's lover being banned and, you know, the shocking, adulterous, flower weaving into pubic hair scene that like, you know, 
caused that book to be and Lawrence to be considered, you know, completely villainous for such a long time to somebody having an amorous moment with a piece of liver from the fridge and then putting it back in the fridge as we see in Philip Roth. Yeah. So there's this author called Alan Gerganis who writes sexual stuff, but he also teaches literature and he encourages his students to, you know, he has, according to this New York Times writer, Sarah Lyle, he has a let's get it on philosophy about sex and literature. And he says that there's an inverse ratio between the abundance of pornography and the scarcity of sex in modern fiction. So we talk about where people live, what they earn, what they eat, what they drive, but we're leaving out the question of their sexual pleasure and that's depriving them of something extremely important. And he's saying that basically we went from like, don't weave flowers in pubic hair in fiction, it's disgusting, that makes you smut, you're banned, to, you know, open the floodgates, everybody do crazy things in fiction, like get it all out there, we're animals, to where we are now, which is like, if you're a true artist, you're not going to get the smut in there because you're, you know, you don't need to. There's Pornhub for that. Uh, And Sally Rooney was one of the first, I think, that I've read anyway, millennial authors who's like, I'm going to go there. It's still going to be highbrow fiction, maybe, uh, or people view it as such anyway, but, you know, I'm going to go there. And she does. And people love it. Absolutely. And, you know, just going back to earlier works, if you think about Jane Austen or the Brontes, think about the efforts that they went to to create sexual tension through, you know, their narrative styles and through just like the plots without actually being able to just put a sex scene in there. And how effective that, like the kiss at the end of Jane Eyre is, I recently reread it, it is the hottest scene in the history of everything. Oh my god. Rochester remains like a hugely kind of attractive figure for me. Apparently it's been adapted for the screen every 10 years since publication. It's it's the only book that's been adapted like at least once a decade. Wow. But the most recent adaptation, I think it was 2016, I finished it and then rewind it on Netflix, which I don't know if you've rewound on Netflix lately, but it takes forever. But I was like sitting there pressing the slow rewind just so oh I could God. rewatch the kiss. And Anthony was like, did you just finish that movie and now you're going to watch the last scene again? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Because you were so psyched for that one little peck. That's how good Bronte is at building that up for you. Actually, it does kind of raise something. And now I'm going, I'm bringing my brow down a few notches. Bridgerton, it's part of what makes it really interesting. And I know that a lot of people call it trash. And like, it's very trashy in a lot of ways. It's also brilliant. Shonda Rhimes is an exceptional television creator. For people who haven't watched Bridgerton, it's like kind of Jane Austen reimagined. It's not a Jane Austen story, but it's that kind of style reimagined. These like English romantic dramas um, set in, you know, uh, country houses and stuff with the British upper class. Except it's this like amazingly diverse reimagination of the British upper class. First of all, just like racially diverse. So you suspend disbelief because that's obviously not like a particularly racially diverse of the English population but also no there was a lot of inbreeding wasn't there uh there was rather I mean don't want to offend the toffs but I think there was I think it's fair to say they also imagine these kind of Austin-esque romantic plot lines with saucy sex scenes and you get to watch them so it's like this incredibly gratifying version of a sort of pride and prejudice but then a purist would say and Jane Austen purist would say well actually if you just 
allow that. The entire fantasy of it is kind of thrown out the window. It's too easy. You're actually putting your finger on something that I think is really important, which is that the anticipation of fulfilling desire versus the actual fulfillment of the desire is where a lot of the eros comes from at least for me and for like a lot of other I think females not only but that's you know yeah it's the will they won't they they want to but they're not it's that feeling versus the like oh here they are fornicating okay I'm gonna I'm gonna say something really (laughs) intense here I think that that's the case not just when like reading literature or watching love stories on television I think that I've what did I read recently that talked about? So women in their fantasies, it's really often all taking place in their head, whereas men love porn. Exactly. There are obviously women who love porn, and there are obviously men that have great imaginations when it comes to this stuff. But generally, that division exists. So the most recent Jane Eyre adaptation was by a male director, Fukunaga, and, you know, he captured that, like, anticipation and desire so beautifully. So obviously it's not as gendered as we've led you, perhaps, to think that we believe it's not so cut and dry, but... No, we're generalizing. We're generalizing. But even someone like Sally Rooney, who does show the act clearly, you know, never for, it's not 12 paragraphs, like it's like three sentences, but she gets under the duvet. But it's, I think, her keeping them apart that really makes her such a strong, like, capturer of romantic truths. She is just a master of that unmet desire, Mm. which is where most of the book lives, even for normal people. And it's it's really only in these like select moments where if the characters are too like circles, then like the Venn diagrams are few and far between, yeah. <laughs> you know, the moments when they actually like manage to connect. And she's communicating this like part of our modern world in which thanks to technology, thanks to all kinds of factors, like we are pretty isolated, you know, in some cases, like more maybe than used to be the case. And we're living in these separate thought bubbles and in these separate like online universes. And it can be really, really hard for two people to connect physically, psychologically, emotionally, intellectually, etc. So I want to get into the fact that not only does she do a really good job of getting her characters to physically connect in a way that you know, sets a lot of people's worlds on fire, but she also gets them to intellectually and emotionally connect. And I would argue that the real love story in Beautiful World, Where Are You? is not necessarily between the two couples, but between Alice and Aileen, the best friends, whose Mm. emails are threaded throughout the work. Wait, I have to just interject with something really trivial. Do you remember my grandmother, Aileen? Of course. So her name was spelled A-I-I. L-E-E-N, and that was pronounced Aileen. So I think, and she had a friend called Eileen, who I believe her name was spelled E-I-L, like in this novel. So I think we're supposed to call her Eileen. Okay, okay. I think you're probably right. Sorry, that was so, so annoying of me, but I just feel like we have to call her Eileen. No, I'm glad. I'm glad. I don't want to be saying it wrong. That's just mean. Thank you. And um, Alice, am I, am I saying that right? Alice. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait, now I'm really nervous. Eileen. 
Eileen. So Eileen and Alice discuss. It's a real comment on the power of female friendship. Definitely. I think that they have clearly already, like before the novel begins, have, well, they haven't nearly lost each other, but Alice has suffered somewhat of an emotional breakdown. And I feel like this, the, the letters are them like reconnecting. But yeah, no, I think that their relationship is really intense. But I don't know. I mean, the, the Eileen-Simon uh, relationship is like, I actually really buy it and I'm really into it. <laughs> I was really into it too. That relationship is also, well, there are three relationships that are central to the plot. But I'm, I'm just saying that the letters that show the kind of intellectual and emotional yeah. connectivity between these two characters and how they don't, you know, up until they meet... Well, I guess Eileen has always had it with Simon to some degree, but she doesn't always have access to it. And it's there are all these barriers up between them based on their Absolutely. age and sex and all these different things. Whereas with her best friend, and it's interesting how it says they never talk on the phone. They only ever write emails and they actually seldom see each other in person. So it's like this epistolary love story. And actually yeah. you had mentioned that some critics have called it intellectual masturbation. I, I was reading a few critics before we jumped on this record, who really have strongly criticized it. And actually, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, but my own sister, like really, who love normal people, did not love this book. And because she was like, it's just so pretentious of Sally Rooney to like, just not even try and hide all of her own sort of political musings and obsessions with the end of the world and all of her like pretentious stuff going on in her brain. And to not even like, bother weaving it into a conversation just like throw it into an email that a character that basically is almost her is just sending off every couple chapters and I do hear that like I personally found what was written in the email so interesting that I was completely captivated by them I do hear the criticism that it's actually a bit it feels a bit lazy at some parts I don't know do you want to defend that I'm not going to defend necessarily, but I do think that this is kind of against what we were saying with death of the author and everything, you know, separation of life and work. But I do know from reading critics prior to this conversation as well that Normal People and Conversations with Friends, her first two novels, received some criticism after, you know, initial adulation. They received some pretty harsh criticism from people saying Sally Rooney talks about herself as a Marxist, but at the end of the day, she's writing these stories about friends and lovers. And it's like she's talking about romance and friendship among a fairly privileged subset, even though some of them may come from uh, working class backgrounds. It's still they end up being in this like, you know, rarefied university setting or intellectual mm -hmm. setting. And it's really just their low stakes banter. Where's, where's all the Marxism? Where's all the, you know, mm. where's the meat is sort of what some of the critics are saying. And I can't help but wonder whether she in including more of that through the emails in this work was saying, okay, fine. And she even defends in the work through Alice, the Alice character, you know, Alice talks about in her exchanges with Aileen, why she writes largely about friendship and romance and mm -hmm these so-called trivial things that in fact are the stuff of life. Yeah, and interestingly, at another part, it's actually Aileen who's an, who call, identifies as a Marxist. There's a scene in a bar in Dublin at a friend's birthday party where she says, oh, you guys are finally catching on to Marxism. I've been saying this for years. Welcome to the club. And then one of her friends, I can't remember what the chap's name is, says, well, actually, does any of us really have the right to be a Marxist? I mean, we're all middle class. 
then they have this debate about what it is to be a Marxist and what it is to be middle class. And she says, you know, but I still pay rent to a landlord with nothing left over and work a job that is not what I want to be doing, etc. And I'm part of this system that is abusing me, basically. And I hear that. I hear her argument. And yet I did roll my eyes through that passage, I have to be honest. Well, so what I thought was particularly artfully done about that scene was A, she was half drunk. B, she was thinking about Simon. You know that here's a character who is in her late 20s and she's got all these things on her mind that have nothing to do with her political views or her, you know, moral compass uh, because she's human. And she's just gone to the bathroom and she's wondering where the wings are at because there were wings before or something. You know, she's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's thinking about snacks and sex and whiskey. And she kind of like half engages in this conversation. And it's like, I thought the framing of the conversation in that way if the conversation itself was kind of annoying, the framing of it in that way was to me an admission of like, even I, Sally Rooney, who presumably like jump out of bed every morning, you know, thinking about Marx, mm, um, right. recognize that like, it's really hard for these, even somebody who's so aware of the end of the world as we know it and uh, tortured by the knowledge of everything that's wrong with the world. It's still hard for your political or your kind of like intellectual views to supersede your more base urges sometimes. Absolutely. And for me, that's part of what actually is so brilliant globally about Rooney's novels and actually what I really love about this one, because ultimately these really intellectual characters are also, they're animals, they're thinking about sex, they're thinking about wings, and she does have those two things line up in a believable way. And actually, when I was saying I was rolling my eyes at Eileen, I don't know that Rooney hasn't set that up on purpose. I think she has. Like, her characters aren't perfect. I think that she kind of wants us to see the annoying side of Eileen in that situation. Yeah. No, I think she wants us to view it as being, like, a little bit, you know, it's it's a shallow defense, right? Like, it's because she's not fully concentrating on it. And it's because her life is not fully about that, about ideals. Simon's, on the other hand. Well, it is and it isn't, though. I mean, Simon, yes, Simon's a super religious Catholic who's like a very practicing church going, all of that, you know, sinless person. Except he's not. Like, he is, I mean, it depends what kind of Catholicism you're practicing, but he is constantly, we gather, shagging young women yeah no his version of catholicism definitely permits the shag that's clear he makes that clear yeah by the way like i i know a few catholics who would think i think that's pretty much the the general modern approach well otherwise it's really hard to keep that birth rate up you know what i mean you gotta keep that birth rate up and also you know you've got to have something to confess Characters creating religion in their own image, like following their own, you know, a la carte version of religion exist in other Sally Rooney works too. So I think that's interesting. But today we're not talking about religion so much as sex. And Yes, let's get back to sex. <laughs> um, you had asked me prior to this conversation whether it's weird, because I read a lot of the same books as my parents, um, because my parents both have really good taste in fiction. And like there's a really great book called The Girl Who Was Saturday Night by Heather O'Neill. And it was my dad who gave it to me. And when I was reading it, I was like, okay, this is, it's weird that my dad's read this, but it's also fine. <laughs> Isn't it interesting how it really doesn't bother me that your dad has read it? But if like my dad, I know I'm his parents really well, but like if my dad had read it, I'd be like, oh. okay, well, I'm going to send it anonymously to Bill just to make your life harder. Oh, God. So my mom has read, she was over for dinner the other night and she happens to have read 
beautiful world where are you not once but twice. This came up organically. And I want to include you, Monica, in what she had to say. Oh, please take it away. So you read it again. Yeah, I read it again because I was looking for a passage that really struck me as original and true. And that was a passage about one of the friends writing to the other friend about how she had kind of separated from her parents and had become well-educated and kind of you know, superior to her parents in every way and then had nothing to say to them anymore. And how sad that is, mm. you know, that sort of, you were, we were just talking about individuation and it's sort of that, you know, but it's also, you know, that loss, that loss of the connection. Because mm, Jung kind of posits it as a goal, something to work toward, but it's also kind of sad. Well, of course, every, every great leap in life requires a loss, you know, where there is leap, there is loss. You know, it's, yeah, it's, 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 we proceed to the next stage, but then we have to leave so much behind. I mean, think about Ezzy and how much she enjoys pretending she's a baby. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how sad I am thinking how much I've surpassed you. That's sad for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurts. That hurts. I looked for that passage, and in looking for it, I found myself rereading the book. Because it's, it's a good way along in the book. And actually, it's only a few lines, and they really aren't that. It seems as though in my memory, I, I turned it into something far more profound than it actually was. I find that about her stuff, too. I've gone back to look for passages as well and found that, yeah, it's not so much the passage as the feeling that she communicates. Yes, maybe that's it. The I was just so, so, I was so moved by it, you know, that I assumed it was sort of quite lengthy and, you know, that it was full of you know, epiphanies, and it really is quite... It's a sentence or two. Yeah, it's just a sentence or two, and nothing that original even. Mm. But it just, something about the way it hit that character, you really felt the sadness, you know, of, of that loss of her closeness to her parents and her sense of belonging in a family. Mm. And uh, so that's why I ended up rereading it. It was well worth it. It's a beautiful book. That was a kind of like camera cachet that was nicely pronounced. It wasn't cachet. She knew that I was recording, but I just wanted to, yeah, I wanted you guys to hear what my mom thought. Her name is Colleen Flood and she is terrifyingly well-read. She's a poet. She is a poet. A brilliant poet. I'll tell her you said that. And she, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's not just millennials, I think, whose malaise has been captured by Sally Rooney. It's, it's a more general, widespread malaise. Although I can't help but feel that some of the dialogue that I really love, and it's, a lot of the time it's like the leading up to sex dialogue, <laughs> or the text flirting or sexting or whatever, is really, I feel like if you aren't our age or maybe a little bit younger, could you possibly get it as well as we do? I mean, could it possibly appeal to our parents to the same on the same level? Maybe it could. But actually, that was one of the things I wanted to tell you that I love so much, particularly about this book. But I guess I think you have this in normal people as well. So control is a really interesting thing, as you and I were discussing. 
on the different levels when she addresses class, but also when she addresses dialogue. And what's interesting is that like you see emails. And so someone who's a really brilliant writer, like the Alice character is going to have a lot of control when she writes an email, when she writes long form like that, or, you know, any person who's has a real way with words in that kind of long form way. But then, then you go to direct messaging and that's actually a real power play. And I feel like it really is all, especially when there's sexual tension in real life, you know, it's whoever can one up the other and you have to be, the kind of person who's really th- quick on their feet and good at jousting. Um, should I read actually my favorite passage? Please. I was going to say, I love that passage. Please read that, the exchange, so that even if you haven't read the book, you know, you have a sense of what, what we mean. Simon, hey, I had a really nice time with you at the weekend. Would you like to see each other again this week? An icon showed that Eileen had seen the message, but no response had arrived. He closed the app and opened the Tuesday call email, which was part of a longer thread. A previous message read, Yes, I am told they have phone records also. Simon or Lisa, can you get across this, please, and get in touch with Anthony if needed? One of his colleagues had replied, If we spend any more time dealing with this non-issue, I'm going to lose my mind. The newest message read, Simon, I'm attaching Anthony's number and details now. Give him a ring tonight if possible or tomorrow morning. No one is happy about this, but it's where we are. Locking his phone, he allowed his eyes to close for a few minutes, and he sat on the sofa, not moving, his chest rising and falling with his breath. After a time, he lifted a hand and passed it slowly down his face. Finally, he reached for the remote control and turned the television on. The nine o'clock news was just beginning. He sat watching the first few items roll past on the screen, his eyes half closed, almost as if he was asleep, but sipping now and then from the cup of tea he kept on an arm of the couch beside him. During an item about road safety, his phone buzzed, and he reached for it immediately. On screen, a new message displayed, Eileen, oddly formal tone here, Simon. He stared down at his message for several seconds, and then typed out a response. Simon, was it? An animated three-dot ellipsis displayed on screen to show that Eileen was typing. Eileen, why do men over 30 text like they're updating a LinkedIn profile? (laughs) Eileen, hi, brackets, Eileen. It was great to see you on brackets Saturday. Can we connect again? Try selecting a time and date from the drop-down menu. Vaguely now, he smiled to himself as his thumbs moved over the keyboard. You're right. If only I were a younger man, I would manually turn off the auto-caps function on my phone in order to seem more laid back. Eileen, it's in settings, Eileen. I can help you find it if you get stuck. At the top of the screen, a new email appeared in the Tuesday call thread. The opening text displayed as, Hi all, have just heard from TJ. Simon dismissed the notification without opening it, then began typing another message to Eileen. Simon, no, that's okay, Simon. I'm always copy and pasting that message saying I had a nice time at the weekend. Can we see each other again, etc. Simon, never had any complaints before. Eileen, ha ha ha. Eileen, you can use copy and paste? I'm impressed. Eileen, anyway, yes, We can see each other this week. Eileen, when is good? Another message appeared at the top of the screen from a contact listed as Geraldine Costigan. Geraldine, your dad said you can give him a ring tomorrow evening if that suits you, sweetheart. XXX. Simon let out a long, slow breath and then swiped upward to dismiss the message. His eyes moving back and forth over the messages to and from Eileen, he typed the words, would you, then deleted them. He scrolled back up to the previous text and looked at them once more. Finally, he began typing again. Are you busy right now? So good. So I just think that that is one of 
the scenes in which you really see how Eileen, because she's so quick on her feet, manages to totally claim control from the outset, even though actually she, I would argue, has been in a situation of lack of control vis-a-vis of Simon since basically the beginning of the book because she loves him and he's dating other women, basically, to put it bluntly. But you see how in our very specific day and age, knowing how to do that thing. Well, you see what you see there is the value of a degree in English. You know, that's what you see. Well, absolutely. You know, and so (laughs) if your parents' kids are asking you why you shouldn't study English lit, you just show them that. Upper hand in a texting convo. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. It's really important. (laughs) It is important. You're reminding me of another steamy read that I want to bring up. Oh, Okay, Seven Days in June by Tia Williams is the story of two writers. One, our protagonist, Eva Mercy. She's an erotic novelist, lives in Brooklyn. She's part of like a very vibrant Black literary community. And she has written this series called Cursed that's about a witch and a vampire. And she's 14 books into it. And it's like super sexual. And for some reason, it appeals largely to like half drunk white housewives. So basically Twilight. It's Twilight, but she talks about Twilight. Like she talks about a lot of um, contemporary stuff in this hilarious book of hers. Seven Days in June. You have to. It's a really good read. So anyway, Eva Mercy is this like phenomenal black artist writer who writes in a genre that, as she talks about throughout the book, like has largely been focused on white characters, um, at least in our contemporary world. And in fact, somebody who wants to make a film out of her series is is talking about whitewashing it and wanting to put white actors in the roles of these characters. And that's one of the huge conflicts that this character faces. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point is that she's writing these like really raunchy books about a vampire and a witch and she has this like massive rowdy fan base and then the love of her young life who she hasn't seen in 15 years is another black author but he's like the author like he's you know a literary lion who um, has a terrible reputation because he was an alcoholic for the whole 15 years that she hasn't seen him and but he wins all the prizes and his works are like of you know undisputed taste and everything about them is just sensational and he's just like this impossible to to rival character and anyway the book is called seven days in june and it's about the seven days when they were in high school that they spent together and then there's a kind of parallel effect i'm not going to get too much into it but what i because i just think you should read it it's a it's a great one for cold nights i will it takes place in a steamy june in brooklyn but One of the things that I really love about this book and that kind of relates to what you were saying about the text message conversations being so central in Sally Rooney, she talks about the protagonist has a 12-year-old daughter whose name is Audrey. And she is like this Gen Z dynamo. And she's my favorite character in the book. And the conversations between mother and daughter are just incredible. Interesting. Um, And then later the daughter starts talking to the love interest. And I just want to read you a little passage. Oh, no, first thing... (laughs) So her daughter um, gets in trouble at school for the first time. And this is this is what Audrey says to her mother. You act like I'm the worst daughter, though, she said. Do you know why Parsley was in detention? Tequila. 
She brought tequila to school? No, she snuck a tequila-soaked tampon to school in her actual vagina, let it absorb into her bloodstream, and was blackout drunk by fourth period. Eva stared at her daughter, thunderstruck. Point taken, she said. <laughs> so all of Audrey's friends are named like Pars- Parsley and Ophelia, and like it's just incredible. And Audrey's greatest goal in life is to be a therapist, and she's already using Venmo to charge her school friends for Snapchat therapy. And her mom keeps getting her in trouble for this. But toward the end, she has a conversation with Shane, who's the male lead. And I just want to read to you what happens between... It's not a spoiler. I don't... Well, maybe it's a bit of a spoiler. So feel free to use earmuffs. But I don't think... A little bit of intuition will will put you in mind of something like this. Are you crying, Mr. Hall? No, he said, squeezing his eyes shut. He hadn't shed a tear since that morning in D.C. a thousand Junes ago. He thought he'd forgotten how. No, I'm not crying. I'm fucking bawling. Ugh, I have this effect on people. But it's okay to cry, she said, handing him a cocktail napkin. Destigmatizing male vulnerability is the first step toward rebuilding the absolute ruin that straight men have left the world in. This is so inappropriate. I'm sorry. With a mighty exhale, Shane ran his hand over his face. Christ, this girl was a feelings ninja. Don't worry. I'll be nice to her. I am so sold on this book. Yeah, so I really recommend this one. Again, in this book, for me anyway, the anticipation was better than the actual descriptions. But I think that's also because, and you know, be it resolved, we can discuss this, but like I think everybody's idea of what actually would be hot when push comes to shove is so, so different. Whereas like it's much more universal to be into the buildup. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe. Wait, but I feel like we haven't touched on a really formative series of novels that I am not proud to have been obsessed with, but I also feel like the world wouldn't be the same without them, particularly as you were talking about a British middle brow, let's say probably quite low brow novelists. But we haven't talked about Jilly Cooper. Oh, Jilly. Jilly. Be still my beating heart. The woman who uses the word bonk as a verb for the act. She is not cloaking her bonking tales in anything intellectual. Nor does she have any, like, you know, we were talking before about shame and guilt and, you know, religious feelings about sex. Like, none of that, clearly. No, no, no. It's just all about... Well, there's a ton of lead up. So the context is that it's all about horse riders. It's like this kind of cult British upper class bizarre. From the 80s. Let's paint a mental picture. On some of the covers, you're going to find like very rotund bottoms with like hands gripping, you know, the flesh of the butt cheeks kind of thing and like a riding crop. And Emma and I were blissfully unaware of these towering works of fiction until we got to Edinburgh University and... um, our new British friends were like all reading or rereading or had copies of Jilly Cooper and they'd all sort of, if you just drop them, they'd fall open to the same pages and it was the sex scenes, obviously. Oh my, I just remember the you, me and Georgie being cuddled off in bed in the guest bedroom of her parents' house in Fulham and Georgie reading aloud to us from Polo. In her like perfect British accent. And we were just surrounded by flowers, like the bedspread, our pajamas, like everything could not have been more floral and girly. <laughs> But it wasn't just like teenage girls reading it. I will remind you that my British boyfriend in first year university was also obsessed with Jilly Cooper. I'm not going to name him, as was his mother. 
I mean, everybody is. Anyone who's come across Julie, how can you resist being obsessed? Even a quite well-known Scottish novelist who I had the pleasure of sitting down with for dessert once when we were in Edinburgh said to me that his favorite writer of all time was Julie Cooper. Because she's really funny. Like she has a really second degree wit about herself. She's kind of making her fun of herself at the same time, but she really goes for it. There is a lot of SEX. Do you know what? I think brows be damned. For me, one of the biggest differences between, and this is maybe controversial and extremely misguided, I don't know, but it's like how much is left out? Because the more you leave out, the harder it is, the more work the reader has to do, the more like style innovation there may be, and therefore the more kind of literary it is. You know, the idea that like the more you hint, in some cases, and I'm just, I'm talking about the types of quote unquote lowbrow writers who I think really have a lot of talent and who are, you yeah. know, they're not writing lowbrow fiction necessarily because that's all they can possibly ever do, but it's because they want to reach a wider audience and they may have just as deft a pen and just as deft in everything, but they're spelling more out so that there's less work that the reader has to do. There is a style where you on purpose spell more out and it makes yeah. the book more absorbable and more accessible and that that's not necessarily a bad thing I love books like that I also like the ones that make you sing for your supper and you know work a little bit harder but I don't think there's that much you know Jilly Cooper is clearly having a ball while she's writing you can just feel it is she still with us by the way is she still writing I think we might need to revisit Jilly Cooper and I think that listeners at home should do the same but anyway start with the Cotswolds trilogy i think it is riders rivals polo exceptionally entertaining and there will be a lot that's offensive in there there is absolutely no doubt in my mind but just remember these are the 80s and you're not in it for cultural enlightenment necessarily although you may find some form of that We're going to have to start putting out this fire. But um, before we go, are there any other steamy reads you'd like to recommend? Um, not necessarily from this year or the past few years, but generally that you have read and love. Yes, indeed. There's one more from this past year called The Paper Palace by Miranda Cowley Heller. And it takes place in the woods on the east coast of the US and I'm not going to say too much more about it except that it's a great read and a fun one to dive into over the holidays. And then in terms of, you know, from the archives, I would say for controversial and unappealing sex. Wow, fun. Yeah. The Literary Review has a gross sex of the year awards. They don't call it that, but what's it called? Do you know what I'm talking about? The Literary Review of London has been handing out the infamous bad sex in fiction awards since 1993. A true honor. A true honor. And I don't know if this has ever won, but it's I read from it at the very beginning of this episode. On Chesil Beach by Ian McEwen is mm. a very, it's a novella and it's about the early marriage of a couple who had no idea about the birds and the bees which would have been fairly typical at this time oh god it's brilliant 
it's been a long time since I've read it, but I think it's set in maybe the 40s. And it's from both of their perspectives. And, you know, from his perspective, he's seeing the Messiah. And from her perspective, it's like nothing has ever been as disgusting as this ever um, or as horrible. And, you know, they're just not speaking the same language at all. And, and it almost so it's I think it's such a great, great work about how wrong sex can go, even when everybody's trying really hard to make it go right. Yeah, it's also a really interesting comment, I feel, on what happens to people when you tell them nothing and prepare them for absolutely nothing in life. So now all of you will feel better prepared going forward in your literary indulgences. I hope you've enjoyed taking part in our uh, book club today. I would like to invite you to email us at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com to let us know what we've missed, because I know we've missed a lot. We've only talked about a very select number of titles here. So share with us your thoughts, your favorites, your hot reads for cold nights or your cold reads for hot nights, whatever you like. And also um, tell us what you think or share your stories with us. We'd love to start reading out some listener emails and just hearing about you. So send us your fan mail and don't forget if you love us, rate and review us on iTunes. I would like to thank our wonderful producer, Matt Bentley-Viney, who blushed his way through this episode with us, subbing in for Joel, who simply did not want to hear our smut. No, I'm kidding, who couldn't make it this week. And check out the show notes for titles, recos, links, all the jazz. Happy reading. Thank you for listening. Bye.